Please pray with me one more time before we get into the word. Father God, it is our heart's desire, our longing to worship you. Thank you for such a beautiful song reflecting the words of Psalm 42 and the heart of one who desires to behold your face and to to be in worship of you in spirit and truth. So we thank you, God, for this time of worship and especially now for the time in your word. And I pray that it would be encouraging and convicting and lead us well into our time of communion. We thank you, God, for this precious privilege um, that we get to partake of the Lord's table and pray that even as the word is being preached and listened to, that um, our hearts would be looking to Christ, remembering him, being thankful in his name. Amen. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're picking up where we left off last Sunday in our God's Story of Beginnings series, which we've been in for a while now. And our title today is Sinful Man Making a Mess versus God Making a Way. And I looked up uh, a list of the greatest inventions over the last 10 years or so, since 2010. And uh, I'll, I'll read a few of them off to you, and you can think about that too. What do you think are the latest, uh, greatest inventions um, that people have made up? Number one was Google Assistant. Google Assistant. Yeah, some of these things I actually didn't know what they were, so I, I just kind of crossed them off. But <laughs> SpaceX's reusable rocket, Elon Musk, that's a big one. Venmo. Does anybody use Venmo here? All right. That's uh, pretty convenient, right? Uh, Nest thermostat. I could guess what that was, but uh, I, I don't know exactly, but maybe some of you know or have that. The iPad. I thought the iPad was older than 2010, but apparently that's um, one of the ones since then. The self-driving car. Anybody have a self-driving car? All right, I don't trust them either. Uh, the consumer LED light bulb. That's a good invention, right? And uh, lastly is the ring doorbell. The ring doorbell. I think some of us uh, have that and appreciate that. But um, I didn't look this up, but I'm pretty sure that none of these inventions were invented by a Christian person. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think they were invented by a Christian. It doesn't mean they're bad inventions. Uh, they're actually, a lot of them, very helpful. But um, today's sermon title, once again, is Sinful Man Making a Mess versus God Making a Way. And you have in your inserts there uh, kind of the, the theme of this passage, which is Genesis 4, verses 16 to 26. And the theme is that godless culture may accomplish many impressive earthly feats, but sinful mankind's only real hope is to call upon the name of the Lord. And hopefully that's super clear by the time we get to the end. But... Um, even as we get into the, the, the verses here, I want you to think about things that you're impressed by uh, in this world. Some things, once again, are actually quite incredible. Some things are very useful, very helpful. But um, how do they compare with what's real, what's eternal, what is spiritual, and what is according to God? Let's look at our verses here. Our first point is that the offspring of ungodly men are producing godless achievements. The offspring of ungodly men producing godless achievements. And uh, verse 16 says that, well, you know what? 
I'm going to read the passage, actually, which we usually do. So if you're able to stand with me, Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. Here it is. 4, verse 16. This is the word of God. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Thank you, Lord, for an easy one. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Please be seated. So getting to our first point again, verse 16, as we saw last week, Cain's sin resulted in him being driven out, driven out from wherever he was, similar to Adam and Eve being banished from the garden. Cain, in his continuing, continuing faithlessness, he goes out further east, it appears. Note again that sin brings broken relationships and alienation from God, and this leads to fear of other people. And Cain is worried that somebody's going to kill him, right? So God graciously allows Cain to continue to live, and even under his protection, but apparently without salvation. So Cain is punished by God to be a vagrant and a wanderer all his life. But here it says that he settled in the land of Nod, verse 16. This may very well be yet another act of defiance by Cain, trying to settle somewhere and building a city, which we're going to see shortly. Interestingly, the word Nod can mean either wandering or fugitive. So there's some irony here, some wordplay. Because God said in in verse 12 that he will be a vagrant and wander on the earth. This means a wandering fugitive. So you might say Cain ended up living in the land of wanderings, the land of Nod, away from the Lord, away from God's presence. So verse 17 says Cain had relations with his wife. This is sexual relations, marital intimacy. 
And the text does not address the question of who she was, who Cain's wife was or where she came from. Okay, apparently, in God's estimation, that's not the main thing to focus on in this narrative, in this story. But the question does remain, doesn't it? And kind of itches, kind of burns. So it's good to ask, who was Cain's wife, who we'll call Mrs. Cain, because it doesn't tell us her name. Cain's wife was either one of his sisters or possibly a niece. Uh, where did she come from? So here we have to look at verse 25. Verse 25, we'll jump ahead for a moment, of chapter 4. It says, Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Okay, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And now look together that with chapter 5, verse 3. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. And then verse 4 says, um, then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Okay, so verse 3 that we just read says that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. And it would not be reasonable to think that Adam and Eve had no sons or daughters from the time that Cain killed Abel until Seth was born, all those decades of living. In fact, as I just read, verse 4 of chapter 5 says that Adam had other sons and daughters. I'm sure it was many, many other children. And this is where Mrs. Cain came from. Seth is, according to verse 25, the third son who is named in Scripture. The third son who is named in Scripture after Cain and Abel, right? And it seems very likely that there were other children they had before him. Okay, the text here, it just assumes that Adam and Eve were busy being fruitful and multiplying. Okay, so it's from their offspring where Cain obtained his wife, which means probably, in in most likelihood, it was his sister. But since there's like a hundred years of bearing fruit, of producing children, um, it's possibly his niece. Okay, so now for the other burning question and the other needed explanation. Uh, he married his sister? Ew, right? That's what we think. Um, but there were no laws, obviously, at this time, time of Genesis chapter 4, of mar- uh, against marrying your family members. God did not officially give those laws until thousands of years later in the time of Moses, right, um, to Israel. Why were there no laws? Why were there no laws against family marriage, intermarriage? Well, obviously, number one, starting with the first family, Adam and Eve, um, there were no other people to marry other than your family members, right? Adam and Eve's uh, children were all brothers and sisters, so there's nobody else to marry besides them and reproduce with. And so tied in with that, the second reason is because there were no genetic problems with intermarriage at the beginning of creation. Adam and Eve were created perfect, were they not? They had perfect genetics. There's nothing physically wrong in them, in their DNA, to pass on to their children. But of course, after they disobeyed God, the fall in the Garden of Eden, what happens? Sin enters into the world, and with that, genetic defects and mutations and disease and disorders, they start to gradually enter into the human race. 
And over time, these things would increase and accumulate. And so, to marry a close relative would become harmful and dangerous. But that was not an issue at all in the beginning, in the time of Genesis 4. And Christian author Gary Parker wrote a good book called Creation Facts of Life. He's helpful here. He writes, quote, Because harmful mutations so greatly outnumber any supposed helpful ones, it's considered unwise nowadays and illegal in many states to marry someone too closely related to you. Why is that? Because you greatly increase the odds that bad genes will show up. And he says, by the way, you also increase the odds of bringing out really excellent trait combinations. But did you ever hear anybody say, don't marry your first cousin or else you'll have a genius for a child? <laughs> they don't usually say that because the odds of something bad happening are far, 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 far greater. He goes on, that would not have been a problem shortly after creation. No problem for Cain and his wife, for example. Until mutations had a chance to accumulate in the human population, no such risk of bad combinations existed. End quote. And so now that we've scratched that ish and hopefully uh, cleared that up, um, addressed that, let's look at our point of ungodly men producing impressive things apart from God. And it starts once again with Cain, second part of verse 17. It says, Cain had relations with his wife. She conceived, gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city. Who is he? That is Cain. Cain, who was punished with vagrancy, no place to settle, no ground to till and keep. He builds a city. And this is a general Hebrew word meaning a fenced-in place okay, or a, a complex of dwellings. Uh, this city could be any size, large or small, made out of anything. It's any kind of complex of dwellings, right? I mean, we hear the word city and we think of sprawling metropolitan Los Angeles. Okay? It's not exactly that necessarily. So Cain the vagabond was trying to erect a place to settle in, okay, trying to settle down, And this may be a hint of the future, right? Genesis chapter 11, what the wicked people did uh, in the land of Shinar. Let us build for ourselves a city, right? Genesis 11, when we get to that confusion part uh, of our seas. It's the first thing Cain does with the birth of his son. He builds a city, then he names that city after his son, which is another hint of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. What do they say? Let us make a name for ourselves, right? So in other words, Cain's actions here are fitting to his unrighteous character, his faithlessness, his life apart from God. He tries to defy God by settling in this city, and and instead of naming the city to remember God by, something after God's name, he names it after his son, his physical son, Enoch. So where does the line of Cain lead? Jude, the way of Cain, right? Or First John, the way of Cain. The serpent, Satan's seed. Okay, Cain's way, Cain's line is of murder, it's of lies. And verse 18 says, Now to Enoch was born Irad, and all those names, right? Which I'm not going to try to do one more time. But those are, that's the line of, of Cain. And by the way, um, the recording of these actual names of all these sons tells us something. This is historical reality. Down to their specific names, 
It's not a legend, not allegory. This is history, God's story, which is truth. So believe it or not, it's God's story of truth. So all of this leads to somewhere, okay, besides that historical reality, it's leading us to Lamech. Lamech. And the text pauses on this seventh generation from Adam. Okay, and it expands more in verses 23 and 24 to describe Lamech's character. We'll get to that. Uh, fittingly, it reveals to us his ungodly and sinful nature, which is in the line of Cain. And verse 19 tells us that Lamech took to himself two wives, right? This is the first mention of polygamy, okay? multiple marriages, right? Multiple wives. It's actually bigamy, two wives. And it states it plainly, just matter of fact. Okay? Notice it doesn't say that Lamech was given two wives or that Lamech was blessed with two wives. No, it says Lamech took to himself two wives. Now, we've already seen that God's design for marriage has been instituted and defined from the beginning, right? Which we just uh, reiterated and purposefully are making this, uh, hopefully, part of our addendum to our bylaws, biblical marriage and sexuality. Okay, one man, one woman for life. Okay, Lamech was the first bigamist. And this practice actually became quite common in biblical times, ancient Near East times, but it was never God's way. He permitted it, just like many other customs that he disapproved of, okay, multiple marriages, divorce, um, just marrying concubines, etc. God, in his grace, allowed people who practiced these things to continue to live. But let's be straight here. Let's understand clearly, just because something is in the Bible, it doesn't mean that it's good or that we should do it, right? Narrative tells the story. It gives the information. It doesn't mean that God condones it, okay, whether it's this or homosexuality or any kind of immorality or sin. God does not condone it or promote it just because the Bible is describing it. And so it's not like uh, if one is good, then two is better, and that's not what God is saying here. That's obvious to most of us here. But uh, Victor Hamilton has a helpful quote here. He says, To be sure, no rebuke from God is directed at Lamech for his violation of the marital arrangement. It is simply recorded. But that is the case with most Old Testament illustrations of polygamy. Abraham is not condemned for cohabiting with Sarah and Hagar. Nor is Jacob for simultaneously marrying Leah and Rachel. In fact, however, nearly every polygamous household in the Old Testament suffers most unpleasant and shattering experiences precisely because of this immoral relationship. The domestic struggles that ensue are devastating, end quote. And do you, do you understand what's going on here? Uh, many times in the Old Testament, God shows the destructive consequences of sin, more often than he states them. Okay? He, he, he shows it. He tells about it. Polygamy is one of many forms of sin. And so the presence of that sin in Lamech's time shows how sin escalated uh, in the marriage relationship following the fall and especially following in the line of Cain. All right? So the next couple verses tell of these great achievements that are accomplished by this godless culture, which has already started being described to us. 
Okay, the offspring of this bigamous Lamech, the line of Cain, verse 20 and 21. It says, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And so who is Jabal? He was the founder of agriculture, let's say. He began animal husbandry, farming, breeding. Uh, some have said that he's the ori- original herdsman of camels. He's a raiser of livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. So he's the musician of the family. Apparently being very skilled himself in both stringed instruments like the lyre, a guitar-like instrument or harp-like instrument, and wind instruments, the pipe. And uh, somehow I can relate to both Jabal and Jubal. Uh, My name, George, it means farmer. And uh, I happen to be a, a guy who likes music a lot. And so well, we have in our family uh, a guitar player. We have a wind player. And so kind of interesting. But I think it's interesting to note that God deems these particular vocations significant enough to tell us the names of the two guys who started it all. And I do thank God uh, for them. And all glory be to God for it. Verse 22 continues saying, As for Zillah, the other wife, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. In other words, the original coppersmith or blacksmith, uh, the progenitor of the industrial arts, being the maker, forger of ancient metal tools, which evidently would be used to create things, to make and build things. And uh, as I was just reading this uh, a few times over and studying it, I, I, somehow the name uh, was changed in my mind from Tubal Cain uh, to Tubal Dave. Thinking of our, our builder here, and uh, just uh, I guess he's maybe in the line of, of Tubal Cain uh, a little bit. Not in the line of Cain himself, though, uh, because that's, that's the bad line, right? <laughs> We're in the line of Seth, hopefully, but um, I'm, I'm just thankful for our brother Dave, who, who does so much around here and is uh, quite skilled uh, at what he does, and I'm very grateful for him. But Mr. Tubal Cain has a sister named Naama, and her name is mentioned also. No other information we have on her whatsoever. But again, historical record, right? Significant, specific name given to us. This is a real person. So what's the point, though? Um, The point of all this is that these impressive even groundbreaking achievements accomplished. They're accomplished by godless men. The disobedient descendants of Cain. They greatly impact history through their industry, through their art, their inventiveness, their discoveries. But all of these great cultural advances produced by this ungodly line are done only by the gracious providence of God. And they illustrate the grace of God at work, even through godless men, right? And speaking of godless men, there's more on Lamech here. And there's more on Lamech in verses 23 and 24. And um, he says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Cain is avenged sevenfold, and Lamech seventy-sevenfold. This is actually the second poem recorded in Genesis so far. What's the first one? 
Adam, right? His wonderful exclamation uh, when he sees Eve uh, back in chapter 2, verse 23. Okay, Lamech's is quite different from Adam's. Quite a contrast there. Some scholars named Lamech's poem Song of the Sword. Okay, in addition to being a bigamist, this despicable descendant of Cain also boasts in being a killer, just like Cain, right? One might say he's claiming self-defense as he's spouting this, but that doesn't seem to fit. He's boasting. He's boasting that he's killed a man just for wounding him. And even a boy, which probably means young warrior, okay, just for striking him. In other words, for minor offenses. So his wives, they certainly better not cross him, right? They probably got tired of hearing his voice. But it says, he goes on, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. So he punctuates his point, saying that his vengeance will be ten times worse, actually eleven times, than the vengeance on anyone who kills Cain. And this reveals a, a violent, bloodthirsty spirit, not to mention boastful pride and utter hubris. His pronouncement says that his vengeance is greater than God's, as if he's capable of exceeding God's vengeance and protection. It's implied that he has men like a gang of thugs, right, around him who's going to mercilessly avenge his death. Basically, his claim takes justice and revenge by his own hands and power. And he's poetically spitting out this song of godless threats, which reminds me of a wise saying, uh, a man who sneezes without a tissue often takes matter into his own hands. <laughs> what arrogance Lamech is filled with. Hey, we see someone who is so far from God, no fear of God, boasting in his own power. Hey, such pride. Lamech is like the guy who says, I'm not conceited. Conceit is a fault, and I have no faults. He's representative of the line of Cain. So the text pauses on him. It expands on his character. Along with the growth in cultural advances that we've seen is the growth of sin, growth of sin as demonstrated by Lamech. But there is hope to be found. The promise, the line, the seed, contrasting with this first point, the offspring of ungodly men producing godless works, Contrast with our second point, the seed of God-fearing men establishing worship of the Lord. It's our last couple of verses here. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Why? Because she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. Hey, there's some wordplay there with the name Seth. And the verb appointed, they sound similar in the Hebrew, sheath and sheath. Okay, the, the verb appointed, um, sheath, that means to place or to set, to grant. Okay, Seth, the name Seth may, may mean something like new beginning or foundation. So Eve says that he's named Seth because God has appointed her another offspring in place of Abel. So I mentioned before, as Adam named Eve life-giver, he gave the woman, his wife, a name, right? Eve, which means life-giver, living. And that suggests Adam's faith in God and his promise, 
Eve, too, in the naming of her sons. Okay, even in Cain, naming Cain, because I have gotten him, I've gotten him from the Lord. And here with Seth, this is an acknowledgement of God. Okay, with Seth, there's also that poignant reminder of Abel's murder, but also the hopeful anticipation of things to come. Okay, this renewed hope with this child that God, she says, has appointed, has, has placed, has set. So among those many other sons and daughters, in chapter 5, verse 4, right, that Adam and Eve had over the course of that 100 years or so, 130 years, this particular one was the one who was considered as the replacement for Abel. So Eve's thinking, maybe this is the one, the one that could take Abel's place to be the seed, maybe the promised one who would crush the serpent's head, or at least he might be the one from whom the seed would come. But it leads to the, the point here. Okay, this is Seth's line. His legacy is of God-fearing men establishing worship of the Lord. What does it say in verse 26? To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Seth has a son, a grandchild for Adam and Eve. His name is Enosh. Some people think it means mortal man, others sick or weak. In any case, he, following the way of Seth, must have been a godly son because it was at this time that men and people began to call on the name of the Lord. And this is the point, our second point. Okay? Um, worship of God is established at this time. And some have said that the faith of the mother must have been strong, Eve, because it was during this particular time of Seth and Enosh when when they began to worship God. It's the first mention of this in Scripture, to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see this stark contrast of Seth's line, Seth's family, against Cain's line and Cain's family. And it's shown by this brief statement. Okay, there's the family of, of Cain, the secular, the rebellious, the material, evil culture. And now we're seeing the spiritual, the sacred, worshiping, righteous culture of Seth's family. And you remember the curse in chapter 3, 15, uh, verse 15. There's going to be enmity between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. And these two are going to coexist and battle throughout all history until the end of history. And this is what's happening here. So what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? That's important. The Hebrew verb is kara. It, it, it's also used for naming um, just like when Cain named the city Enoch that we just went over in verse 17. Um, also in verse 25, when Eve names Seth. So that, that verb can mean to name someone or something, but it also means proclaiming or summoning, even praying. Okay, so putting all that together, proclamation, prayer, calling on God's name, which is to say, Praising the character of God, praising him in worship of him. Gordon Wenham says that this seems to be an umbrella phrase for worship, most obviously prayer and sacrifice. So this is telling us the origin of regular divine worship. Before, we saw the origins of farming and music and metalworks, right? Here's the contrast to all of that. This is worship of God. 
And by the way, some of you might be thinking of Cain and Abel. Well, didn't they make offerings and sacrifices? Yes, they did. They did that before. So here, this might be the reintroduction of worship and sacrifices, uh, maybe more so on a regular basis, perhaps on a more corporate level, people worshiping together. It could imply a, a regular, more solemn or public worship of the Lord or prayer that was not practiced earlier. Albert Barnes adds this, to call on the name of the Lord is to invoke his proper name in audible and social prayer and praise. It is to approach him in thanksgiving, worship, and petition, and in so doing, proclaiming the name of God. So at the same time that the world was becoming more and more wicked, as we've seen, right, through the line of Cain and Cain himself, and down to Lamech, Seth's descendants stood out from that corrupted, fallen society in that they began to call upon the name of the Lord to worship Yahweh God. So as we conclude here and uh, make our way into our observance of the Lord's table, Genesis 4 tells us of the spread of civilization. Okay, we, have, we have some information given by God that's not found in, in, the, in the history books, right? This is um, special information about how society and civilization spread. And it reveals this information via these two families, these first lines of Cain and Seth. And the contrasting picture we see are, are, are tracing the seed which God spoke of in Genesis 3.15, right? The seed of Satan, the offspring of Satan, and the offspring of the woman. Cain was not to be the seed, but as we saw, he and his line prospered on a cultural level, on a physical level, even though they rebelled against God. And so I want us to come away from this text in this passage today, praising God for his grace, okay? understanding his attribute of grace. God allowed him to live, allowed him to have a wife and family, and to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren for his line to accomplish wonderful things. What a grace of God. And then the second thing that we need to take away is the more important one, the more important advance, the more significant contribution was from Seth's line, right? The chosen line. His introduces us to worship of God, proclaiming and praising and praying to him, calling on his name. And it's going to be out of the line of Seth that the ultimate promised seed will come, which is yet future, right? The conqueror of Satan is going to come. The one who will destroy sin and death, he's going to come. And the one who's going to bring back paradise He'll do it. And that is none other than Jesus Christ, the Savior himself, right? And so Luke chapter 3 traces Jesus' line. There's a genealogy in the Gospel of Luke, and it's found in chapter 3. You can turn there and just listen. But uh, it traces Jesus' line via Mary, Mary's family, and it starts in verse 23. It says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, right? His earthly father, Joseph, the son of Eli, who is actually Mary's father, 
and the son of Mathad, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. And it goes on and on and on, down to verse 38, which says, listen, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And okay, so it, it, Jesus is going to come from this righteous line of Seth. And so we'll try to connect more dots uh, next time when we get to Genesis chapter 5. But I want to just end with this. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Okay, for New Testament believers, what is it to call upon the name of the Lord? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Paul is writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, people who call on the name of the Lord are identified here by Paul as believers. A calling on the name of the Lord is the mark of a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, here's the call to you. A Romans 10 verses 11 and 13. The promise, the call, the wooing, the invite, the command, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not be disappointed. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So those who call on the name of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. You recognize him as your Savior. You recognize him, submit to him as your Lord. This is vital for life, for spiritual life. And those who do receive the gift, it's eternal life. The question is, are you humble enough to confess your need and dependence on God? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the question for you today. Are you humble enough to confess him as your Savior and to submit to him as your personal Lord this morning. And for us who are believers, we continue in that life of worship, of prayer, of proclamation, of dependence, calling on our Creator and Redeemer's name. And that too is an expression of humility and dependence on Him. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Put your faith in Him. That's the call today. So we've seen these two very different contrasting pictures uh, way back from the beginning, these two lines. And so we can be super impressed with all these things that people have made up, TED Talks and Elon Musk and all these things that were accomplished by unbelieving people. Um, we should be thankful for them. We should be thankful for God's grace and just redeeming all those things for his glory. Um, but we land on the precious gift of salvation in Christ, which allows us to worship him. That's where the real hope is.